Hey, once again, we welcome you back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We've been on a little bit of a break as the new year has uh, come and gone. So here we are uh, moving steadily into 2022. Happy to welcome Tof Cottle as our first guest of the year. Good to catch up with you once again. Well, I didn't know I didn't know I had the honor of the first guest of the new year. Yeah, well, Glad to catch up. Turns it turns out everybody really kind of got in the mood for a holiday, and <laughs> we just ran with it. I guess. No, we yeah. we've. Uh, I guess like a lot of people, there's just been a lot of things going on, a lot of fires to put out, but uh, glad to have you here and a very, very timely topic to discuss. I'm seeing a piece that you have written for the Salt Lake Tribune, Mitt Romney's child tax credit plan deserves support. Now, I had to stop and think, which which tax credit plan, can you explain to me, for those who may not uh, be familiar with the tax credit plan, is is this part of the the checks that uh, parents have been receiving on on the regular for, for the last well, year and a half or so, you know, from due to like like stimulus or to to help us get through the uh, the pandemic. Yeah, so the child child tax credit plan's actually been around for a while. It just got greatly expanded during the COVID nineteen crisis. Gotcha. You know, it's funny. I don't want to call it a, a footnote necessarily on the on the original plan, but it turned out to be the most effective. And I think the most popular for a lot of people. So what turned into kind of just like this random idea of hey, we should expand eligibility turned into actually this is probably one of the better pandemic things we did now i'm i'm not much of a tax and spend guy and i suspect you probably aren't either but walk us through what would how did this help people obviously there were some pretty strange circumstances at play here but what were the chief ways that you can see that that uh, expanding that that uh, child tax credit plan actually benefited people yeah, so and a lot of research coming out, um, you know, numbers are varying right now, but about 30 to 50% of poverty reduction amongst children in the United States. So quite a big number, you know, you're talking one third to half. Um, what it did was it put money in the pockets of parents right away. So what it basically did was a $300 check per child, um, no cap on that. So, you know, if you got if you got seven kids, you know, you're getting $2,100 a month. Um, greatly expanded. Um, so what it did was previous to that, you had a, a income threshold that was pretty low. So what the, what the expansion was, was basically just opening up to more families and to more parents to give you an idea of the expansion. And this is going to blow your mind, but in West Virginia alone, 93% of kids qualified for the tax credit. Holy cow. So you're talking you know, one state, 93% of kids able to get 300 bucks a month towards, you know, food, shelter, everything. So now the rub is, I understand this expired in uh, December. So what, what happens from here? This, this is where I see uh, Mitt Romney is actually stepping onto the stage as, as a potential player. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think I published, I think this came out December 17th, and so much has happened since. Even even yesterday and today, I had to get on and just, like, kind of debrief a lot of it. So, you know, Build Back Better didn't happen last year. Probably not going to happen anytime soon, if at all, this year because of inflation issues. Um, but, you know, there's still people like um, Mitt Romney, like Marco Rubio, like Mike Lee on the right, and then majority of Democrats on the left who still want to get this passed. So... Right now, we're seeing, you know, 49 Democrats plus Mitt Romney on a plan that has no work requirement. We're seeing 47 or sorry, you're seeing probably 49 Democrats, 
plus a few, plus a, a, a Marco Rubio, plus a Mike Lee, plus a Joe Manchin, if you have a work requirement involved. So kind of a complex issue going forward, I think. You know, I, I'm torn on this one, if, if only for, um, I think government is sp- government spending is, is just absolutely almost unimaginable. The amount of money that has been spent, especially since the pandemic started, it's mind boggling. At the same time, we're talking, uh, what, three to four million kids that, that are at risk of falling back into poverty. I just want to ask, uh, Tof, are there any other alternatives besides the government doing this, or is this the quickest way to get a quick result uh, when time is of the essence? Well, I think it's a quick way. I also think it's an effective way, right? So, you know, you talk about government spending being a lot. It's a lot every year. It's, it's getting to be more and more and more. And I think we're seeing a lot less and less and less effective programs. So in order, the ability to have a program that's pretty instantaneous but also has had the results that this has had, it's kind of frustrating. And I think a lot of people are frustrated to see such an effective policy just kind of get thrown by the wayside. Um, you know, de- Democrats put a put a hold on Build Back Better um, you know, then there's a brief, I think, of like a four-day discussion of like, should we pass this as a separate bill? And they said, no, we're going to move on to voting rights. And like I said, there's just all these people left waiting, wondering, where's our checks? There's a bunch of politicians saying, wait, we thought this was actually really effective. Why are we not focusing on this? Um, so I, I don't think it's necessarily a matter of are there other policies. I think it's a matter of this was super effective, so why aren't we doing it? Okay. And and tell me how, how does uh, Mitt Romney's proposed uh, child tax credit bill differ from the one that was that they were trying to put into the Build Back Better bill? Very similar. And in fact, the majority of think tanks working on this actually like the Mitt Romney plan a lot more. So what it's going to do is it's going to give more money to families of lower income, um, and then it kind of tapers off a bit more at the top. The key difference is that there's a cap. So I think it's around 15,000. So if you're, if you're getting 15,000 or more, if you had a lot of kids and you're doing that, there is a, there's a hard cap, whereas the Democrats plan does not have one. Um, there's not that many families with that many kids that would even hit that cap. So, you know, for most people and for most studies, it's negligible. So the Romney plan is a great plan. Um, will it garner the support it needs? I, the way it's looking, probably not. Um, and that's, that's I think, why, why I'm here. That's why I think a lot of people are speaking up and speaking out about this. Where is the chief opposition to be found right now? Is it just simply party line Republicans or are there others who are saying, ah, I don't know if I can sign on? I think it's the governing party right now, the Democrats focusing on other issues. I think it's um, majority of Republicans who oppose the big, big spending bills and then a small amount of Republicans who support the child tax credit with a work issue. And so we're kind of just split into three, three sides right now, which is a small number of Republicans that support it. Democrats who kind of moved on and then Republicans who I, I don't even want to say they don't support it. They just have other things going on right now. You noted in your article that nearly 20 percent of U.S. children live in poverty. And and I'm just curious, how does is that number steeply up since the beginning of the pandemic? Is it something that has remained fairly steady? Where, where do we stand? What what kind of shift has taken place there, if any? So I, I think poverty around the U.S. went up you know, pretty unilaterally around COVID. Um, 
just the amount of jobs lost and things like that. But that number, that 50% reduction in child poverty actually occurred during the COVID-19 pandemic. So you're seeing a lot of families and you're seeing a lot of kids that have increased food security, increased housing security. And the studies on that are remarkable about education outcomes, about the ability for them to attend technical trainings or even go to university and things like that. So I kind of, I kind of hesitate around the arguments of it pays for itself because it's a long-term investment, but the U S is second to last in the OECD in family spending. You know, this is, this is something that, that is pretty logical and reasonable to do. I believe. Is this something that's sustainable? I think it is something that's sustainable and, you know, especially in the long run, um, the, pro- the program didn't cost that much when we, we talk about SNAP, when we talk about other ginormous programs. And this was direct to pocket, pocket stuff. So, you know, this is like the stimulus checks that everyone got. So everyone had that feeling of like, oh, I suddenly have money in my bank account. I can pay off credit card bills or I can do this. And if you're on the higher end of things, you can buy your new iPhone or whatever. But um, no, it's it's very efficient, I think, as far as government um, bureaucracy goes, because it's basically just a few buttons at the IRS that gives people this money. Okay, so this, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, I guess the advantage here is this comes with a lot less strings attached because basically it comes in the form of cash here. Get what you need. And that's going to be different from person to person rather than a one size fits all. But you can only spend it on this or only spend it on that. Yeah. So I think it just get, affords parents the ability to um, spend it on what they need. Right. So in some places of the country, rent is more than other places. Some places of the country, food is more expensive than other places. So it's not saying, oh, this is tied to food. Oh, this is tied to housing. Oh, this is tied to this. It's saying this is tied to whatever you need it to be tied to. Um, there is significant research that shows um you know, especially the stimulus checks, but the tile tax credit were overwhelmingly to paying rent, to paying food, um, which is something that, you know, as a kid, you know, I loved having the security of, um, I guess the, the biggest, and now that you say strings attached, that always leads my mind to the other thing, which is the work requirement. And that's kind of where things are headed. So this work requirement debate and, I understand this this issue, and I understand the voices on both sides saying, "Hey, you know, we want parents to be able to work. We don't want to have the reduction in in labor. We already have a tight labor market right now. You know, there are lots of jobs not being filled, and I I, I get that. I just worry because we're tying the the benefit and the welfare of kids to something they cannot control at all, and so like. I understand I understand trying to balance these types of things, but at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is get these kids into into the careers and into the things that, that they need to be in. Instead of uh, pull them up by their own bootstraps kind of approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, we've got, this is um, where we've got to unfortunately wrap up because we are up against the clock here. We're talking with Tof Cottle. This is a piece he's written for the Salt Lake Tribune. He is a Young Voices contributor. Uh, Tof, where can people follow your work? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, um, TC underscore Elk, and then you can find me. I'm usually in the National Interest or Salt Lake Tribune. I appreciate it so much. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are now joined by Young Voices contributor Cooper Conway, joining us from uh, the beautiful and wintry Gem State. Cooper, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So for people who are meeting you for the first time, let's give a little bit of background, and then we've got a terrific topic to tackle here. 
Yeah, uh, I'm a senior at Boise State. I'm entering my last semester, hopefully, if I uh, pass all my classes. I like to write about um, education, more specifically uh, education choice or school choice for those uh, familiar and uh, I'm, I'm glad to be on the show. Well, and let's let's talk about school choice. I, I'm looking at the headline of an article you've written for WashingtonExaminer.com. In 2022, more educational choice is necessary. Now, given what brought to, oh, I forget the guy's name now. Um, sorry, the new Virginia governor, the one who beat Terry McAuliffe. His Glenn name, Youngkin. Glenn Youngkins, thank you. It was educational choice that really propelled him to the the governor's mansion in Virginia. It looks like Michigan may have a similar opportunity after a tweet that went out uh, just a couple of days ago from uh, the the state's Democratic Party regarding parents and what their role should or shouldn't be in education. So it seems like there's there's either a movement in the pendulum or the tide is turning. I don't know how to put it, but it seems like there is far more interest in in school choice. In your opinion, what drives that uh, that renewed or, or increasing sense of interest? Well, I think education choice for a long time has gained uh, bipartisan support. It really crosses uh, party lines, it crosses racial and ethnic lines. Um, We've seen recent polling showing almost nearly three quarters of voters support educational choice. And I think it's only going to, if you can believe this, continue to increase as um, over this past year we saw with school closures, parents were being affected, uh, students were being affected. And it was something recently that was uh, reported by the Wall Street Journal in a, in a new study was that parents who were forced to go to uh, remote learning, it was kind of obvious the negative effects that were had on children. But parents are now facing some mental health struggles from these forced remote learning because it's 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 throwing them off their schedule. It's, it's causing a bunch of problems. So uh, parents are hoping for more educational choice in the future here. Okay, and let's. I know in your article here, you mention that uh, right now, if you look at America's youth, there are a number of warning signs that things are clearly not in a sustainable way. What What are some of those signs? Well, I think you could have, you could have uh, foreseen that standardized test scores have gone down. Um, we're seeing in a handful of states uh, a decline about ten to twenty percent so far. That's reported, depending on the subject, and a decline um, on students' test scores. But also what we're seeing is these vast mental health related um, emergencies going into these into these children and these students. And I think that's pretty obvious when you say, hey, I'm going to take your child. I'm going to take them away from their their friends, their school sports, uh, their teachers who they care about. And I'm just going to throw them in front of a screen for eight hours a day so that they can learn. It's isolating. And it's this is a serious problem that we I don't think that we're looking at the long term effects of how this could really impact our children. Now, the school choice issue, of course, has been around a long time, but it seems like COVID has has forced people at least out of that comfortable place of stasis where, you know, nah, we're just coasting. We, we don't want to upset anything to where they've had to, to confront some possibilities that maybe they didn't before. Where does the primary opposition to school choice come from? Is it, is it the the teachers unions, for instance? Yeah, the teachers unions are kind of uh, enemy number one of school choice. Uh, more competition is not fun for public school teachers and, and their unions that represent them. Um, not necessarily even the teachers, but really the unions that are the, the problem here. Um, recently in Chicago, for example, 73% of its members voted to shut classrooms down um, and send their children um, back online. And, you know, teachers unions like to say that they're 
uh, underpaid or they aren't receiving proper uh, precautions for COVID. But the average career uh, Chicago public school educator retires at 62 with a starting pension of $74,000. And they're paid around $60,000, some of the one of the highest rates in the country. Um, and so the money isn't necessarily the problem here. It really just seems that the the union here doesn't really want to do their job. And, and why not? If you have the ability to go home and relax a little bit, not work and still get paid, that's a pretty good deal. Well, and they have a lot of political power. And I'm I'm not trying to say that they're especially bad or evil or anything. But when you have political clout, I guess it's going to be human nature. You're going to want to use it to your advantage. And it sure seems like that's been the case in keeping the kids out of schools or keeping schools closed. As you know, some places open up and others just nope. And it's usually always the teachers unions going, we don't want them to open. It's it's our safety, you know, that's at stake here. Yep, it's exactly. There's a host of reasons right now it's COVID. Uh, but these closures don't, don't just happen necessarily with COVID. They've happened before. Um, but it's a when you have the ability to close schools single handedly, basically on a, on a vote, as the Chicago Public School Teachers Unions did. Um, why not? It's a good deal for them. But really, the, the parents and the students are the ones that are facing these adverse effects. Uh, and it, it worries me moving forward here if we're going to continue to see this trend. And it's been a little bit disturbing, too, to see where other things have come up. And I'll just give, for instance, critical race theory, among other things, being taught in the schools. I mean, the, the school board meetings have become kind of a flashpoint with parents stepping up and going, I don't want my kid to be taught this. And, you know, there's there are forces telling them, too bad. Shut up. You're you're not the one who gets to make these decisions. Exactly. It's really a question of. It's almost like asking whose child is it actually? Is it the schools or the parents? And the question in my mind is, it should, I mean, it should obviously be the parent's child, right? The parents should have a say in what their child is being taught. But right now, parents are being ignored. And that's why, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the Virginia elections and um, just showed a host of um, Republicans that were put into office on running on the promise of, well, parents, you're going to have a say in your child's education. And I think that's going to that trend is only going to continue here. So what are some of the uh, school choice policies that are that are out there right now that could have the kind of impact that parents and others are calling for? Yeah, well, the gold standard is education savings accounts. Eighty four percent of parents support them. Um, and basically they permit funds otherwise earmarked for their child's public school to be spent on a host of other education related expenses including uh, private tutoring, uh, private education, learning materials, special needs therapies. Really, the whole point of the education savings account is to provide the most flexibility with the parents' education dollars possible. Okay. And and again, it's not a one-size-fits-all proposition. So this is this is in some ways the market looking to solve problems that people have and letting people use their choice to go where they feel like they are best served. Now, again, is who, who are the prime... Uh, sources of opposition. I'm, I'm guessing the teachers unions already are in the bag. Who else would push back against educational choice in these cases? Well, yeah, the teachers unions really are kind of the number one um, opposer of this. Um, Democratic politicians who are usually influenced by the teachers unions also don't really like um, to, to do this as well. And it, But also there's kind of um, a, a, a line that's always trotted out is that educational choice is going to hurt public schools and that you're taking the money away and defunding the public schools is the line that's used. But that just isn't shown to be the case. Usually when these education choice programs are put into place, uh, private schools, um, the the students benefit, their scores benefit, but also public school students, um, their scores benefit as well because the public schools 
have to become a little bit better now that there's a little bit more competition introduced and they can't just kind of lay back and know that the money's going to funnel into them no matter what. No, I agree. Competition does make everybody bring their A game, you know, to whatever it is they're doing. And I guess that's that's the nature of a monopoly, though, especially, you know, a government enforced monopoly is I don't want to. <laughs> you know, this is good yeah. enough for government work, or at least that's the mentality in some areas. Talk to me about where does support for the for educational choice fall? Is this something that is an easier sell to, to some uh, demographics? Or, or is it is it something that you're finding some widespread agreement on, regardless of backgrounds? Yeah, historically, education choice was targeted um, in its messaging towards lower income areas and families, because usually historically the schools weren't as good, right? And so, as we've seen these increases in support over this past year, I attribute that mostly towards um, wealthier areas where the public schools perform a little bit better those schools are not closed. And so those parents are affected and they're like, wait, well, I don't really want to do remote education for my child. Can I have this, this money and somehow send them to a private school or create a learning pod um, with a neighborhood of families? And so now I think it's being marketed towards everybody. And it just becomes kind of obvious. Why can't I choose uh, the, the private school down the street if I'm being forced to go into this public school that's closed? All right. We are unfortunately up against the clock. Cooper Conway, where can people follow your work? You can follow me on Twitter at Cooper Conway one. And then you can also see me on the Young Voices page just with my name, Cooper Conway. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome back to the show Kenneth Shrupp. He is a Young Voices contributor and uh, joining us today uh, from Connecticut. That's a little bit uh, out of your normal time zone, but to Kenneth, great to catch up with you. How does life find you as 2022 gets underway? You know, life is finding me pretty well. I, I caught COVID right before New Year's, so my festivities uh, remain at home in quarantine. But since then, I've been catching up, enjoying friends, uh, and, and starting to travel and enjoy this great country. Well, and and it looks like you've been able to keep up on your writing, although I'm, I'm noticing actually this article I'm looking at was published back in December. But I'm looking at an article you wrote for RealClearPolicy.com. $4 trillion reconciliation bill reflects bipartisan legacy of reckless spending. Kenneth, you are talking my language here. Talk, bring us up to speed on, you know, how how has this bill progressed? My understanding is there's a lot of stuff the Democrats have wanted they haven't gotten in terms of big spending bills. Where does this reconciliation bill stand currently? Well, cu- currently, it seems like it's been shelved, uh, especially after Senator Manchin said he's not willing to fund a bill of this magnitude, especially given that the the target cost of $1.5 trillion was a, was gimmicky and lies based on the fact that the, most of these programs would expire in the next few years and require um, new reauthorization, which we know, of course, would happen. There's no such thing as a temporary government program. Now, very true. What are some of the things that people would recognize that this bill uh, purports that it would accomplish? In other words, what are the justifications being given for why it should pass? Uh, there, there, there were a lot of handouts in there that were really concerning. One of them was this paid 300,000-member Civilian Climate Corps 
of probably indoctrinated youth. It's very reminiscent of the Cultural Revolution's Red Guards in China. I, I don't think I would want 300,000 roving climate control activists telling me how to live my life and what to do. Someone snitching on me for using wood in my fireplace or who knows what. Um, another one was this $500 billion tax cut for wealthy property owners and high-tax Democrat states, uh, a reinstatement of the state and local tax deduction. Wow. Um, ostensibly, you know, these, these bill, this bill is supposed to really target the middle, cl- middle class and lower classes, but it's just riddled with niche handouts for special interest groups. Now, Republicans aren't exactly innocent on this count as well. So I I don't want to try to lay this at the feet of the Democrats. I see ever since they started all this reckless spending. I mean, the Republicans have had their moments in reckless spending as well. Talk to me about some of the examples we could point to where where the Republicans have gotten carried away with the national checkbook. Uh, I mean, let's let's look at the most recent example of when Republicans had unified control of government and could have passed whatever budget they wanted. Uh, that was 26. That was after Trump was elected. So 2017, 2018 budget. Uh, we had trillion dollar deficits when the economy was roaring. We were, we were running trillion dollar deficits. We weren't willing to change any of our programs. I mean, this is there's a complete just lack of will to do anything. Are we just trying to buy votes? Is that who we are? And that's that's so. yeah, that's actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Why would they do this? I mean, look, I don't I don't hold politicians in the highest esteem, but I'm going to give them at least basic, you know, human common sense that they can't look at this and think, oh, this is a sustainable way to to approach, you know, our, our budgeting and our spending. They, they have to know at some point it's going to stop. Why do they keep on doing it? I don't, I'm not sure how it serves their interest. Are, are there anything other than possible buying votes, you know, currying favor among the electorate that, that would keep this afloat? Okay. Well, let's let's look at it from this other angle. Right, The last budget surplus we actually had was over 60 years ago in the final year of the Eisenhower administration. Not during the Clinton administration. That was due to a budgeting accounting gimmick because they counted money that they were ransacking from Social Security as government income, even though that money is already owed to Social Security. So we haven't had a surplus since the 1950s. And I think it's very easy when you're a politician, you're thinking in two year, in a two-year time frame, you're not thinking in a 20-year time frame. You don't really care. You're, you're going, you don't want to change anything that's going to rock the boat and threaten your re-election. And if you look at the biggest drivers of federal spending, which are you know Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, um, th- those are benefits that are often used by the Republican base. Old people who tend to be older, over 65, um, who, who are solid Republican voters, don't want their Social Security cut, don't want their, Medi- Medicaid cut, their Medicare cut. Um, that, that was one of the things that Donald Trump ran on. He said, I'm not going to touch your Social Security. Mitch McConnell, he's not going to touch someone's Social Security or Medicaid because that's who's, that, those are the people who vote for him. Now, you stand, you sound the warning in this article, in the RealClearPolicy.com article. You say that uh, this there's evidence that uh, this bill could potentially wreck the economy. Help, help me understand how. Okay. Well, if, if, if passed, uh, this bill would add about $16.3 trillion to the federal debt. Uh, by 2050, which is the size of the entire U.S. GDP in 2012. That's an astronomical amount of money. For context, 80, the total total national debt by 2050, if this bill passes, is expected to be about $83 trillion. Wow. Um, 
bill would also likely, according to the Penn Wharton Budget Office, lower U.S. GDP by 2.9%, which is uh, about the size of Mexico's entire economy last year. There's a trillion dollars. Man, uh, that's, we, we really can't. That's sobering. <laughs> Holy cow. And yet, it, it seems like it seems like the political class, or at least some of the key members of the political class, are just like, yeah, what else can we do as they kick the can further down the road? Where does the, where does the point come where this is no longer possible for them to do? I mean, is it going to take... Uh, you know, is it going to take collapse of the dollar or something of that magnitude to, to bring them back in line? Uh, yes. Pro- I mean, we have a deadline. We do. It's 2032 when paying interest on the national debt will surpass combined dec- discretionary and defense spending each year. And that's without that's assuming uh, this bill doesn't even pass. <laughs> Dang. Um, if this bill passes, that's a little bit sooner. So and. Sorry, go ahead. I, I'm just wondering, where, who is going to be the one who, is there anybody there in Washington, D.C., who's going to have the courage to stand up and say, look, I know this is unpopular, but we can't keep doing this. I guess for that matter, would, would that person be listened to? No, I, I think if inflation continues the way it does, I think there will be an appetite for fiscal restraint once again. Because inflation, inflation is appears to be the way in which the government wants to, to sneak its way out of out of out of these deficits you have high inflation and low interest rates and what you owe in real terms goes down but everyone else pay, but everyone else pays and suffers for it at the gas pump at the grocery store checkout line it's a complete mess so i notice in your article you you point out that look there are a lot of people who were supporters of trump in the 2020 election um they they may have not seen their candidate elected to the presidency but they're still a pretty formidable voting block and you say they would be better off to to uh, redirect their uh, power or to to put their emphasis behind redirecting uh the growing power of government away from all this spending into a more productive Avenues. I mean, what? Where would you? Where would you encourage them to put their pressure to to slow the the roll of of this debt and and spending juggernaut? Uh, honestly, it's a matter of electing federal officials willing to willing to give power back to the states. We need. I, I don't think that federal welfare programs should be federal programs. One size fails all is running us all into bankruptcy. I'd like to see fifty states competing on different welfare programs or not even have them at all, perhaps. But we can at least have different models for success and failure so we aren't all dragged down by these boondoggles. No, I, I'm with you. And yet I I just don't see the courage, at least among the, the political class, and that includes, you know, top leaders in both parties. That uh, they're gonna, no, I, I don't I, think they're going to willingly turn that spigot off. I think somebody's going to have to turn it off and they're just going to have to accept it. And I don't really see it happening with the activist base either, because we're looking at activists now. Former Tea Party individuals are now um, so socially conservative, big government people who want to use government programs to to enact and push their own social agenda and grow, and grow programs more and more without without addressing any of these problems. We can't do this. We're just living in la la land. Any idea of, uh, I mean, you mentioned 2032 is when the interest outpaces the actual, uh, you know, amount of, of uh, you know, revenue that can be brought in. Um, where else might pressure come to make that uh, that shift? 
I, I really think it's going to have to come. It's going to be inflation and people's bottom line and and people recognizing that it really is government, government, reckless government spending that is is driving their families into economic despair, that all this suffering is the result of too much government. Um, I, I, I don't know how that's going to happen. I, I don't have a prescription for that. <laughs> if I, if I'd be very happy if I had those answers right now, but I don't. No, it's. I mean, I, I'm not seeing a lot of willpower on the part of either major party. But, man, I love your article, and I appreciate you shedding light on a very necessary subject. Kenneth, where can people find more of your work? Uh, I, I say follow me on Twitter. You just search my name, Kenneth Shrupp, S-C-H-R-U-P-P. You'll be able to sign up and follow me for the latest updates and news. Otherwise, please visit the California Review at calrev.org. Okay, thank you very much. This is our final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Happy to welcome back to the show Addison Hosner. He is a licensed Florida attorney and solo practitioner based in Fort Myers, Florida. He's also a Young Voices contributor. Addison, it's good to catch up with you once again. How you doing, Brian? It's good to see you again as well. Well, here we go. Brand new year ahead of us, and uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff taking place, a lot of stuff maybe we hadn't anticipated. But I'm glad to see there is one constant, and that is it appears that uh, the congressional leadership is still doing very well for their public service. And I'm saying that as sarcastically as I can because, uh, man, it seems like... It seems like a dream job, you know, where you can go to work as as a representative of the people or a senator and uh, go in with, uh, you know, a modest amount of pay each year, 120000 I don't know what senators make. But, boy, some of these folks are doing really, really well. Talk to me about your article on insider trading at Congress, a love story. Well, that's exactly what it is, Brian. And, uh, you know, for what it's worth, the average congressional member makes $174,000 annually. That's just for the base low level. Uh, you go all the way up to the Speaker of the House, she's making about 223000 a year. And that's, of course, Nancy Pelosi. So the story has been kind of ongoing. It's been an issue for the last few years, but I think recently really blowing up uh, thanks to Speaker Pelosi's comments. So what's happening here is uh, congressional members are, are trading securities, stocks, and not just stocks and companies, but also options trading, which is at, you know, some would consider it gambling on stock prices and companies. Now, to do this, you, you usually have to have some insider information about what's going on. You either are just really familiar with the markets, you study this stuff, you do it for a living. But we have congressional members now who are using information that they are acquiring by sitting on committees that is influencing laws. And these laws are then causing uh, stock prices to rise and fall because they're proposing regulation or, or some type of um, restraint on a product that might enter the market. And so as of late, the general public, I think, is becoming more aware of this. I mean, the COVID pandemic has really brought it to the forefront. Um, you know, just to give you a net, you know, rough estimate here, we have about 535 congressional members, voting members. Um, of those, 250 are millionaires. 200 are multimillionaires. And I think the more staggering percentage here is 80 of them are holding net worth of 10 million or more. Uh, Nancy Pelosi had made comments that we are a free market and that congressional members should be able to participate in that free market. And that's mm -hmm. true. I think everyone agrees we should be allowing that. But the issue here is that her husband owns tens of millions of dollars in stocks. And between the years of 2019 and 2021, 
uh, he made $62 million in growth on his securities. Now, uh, you know, Pelosi will say that's just pure coincidence, but I think the American people, uh, you can't pull the wool over our eyes for too long. And some members of Congress are now trying to propose restraint and legislation to prevent Congress members from trading stocks. And that's what brings us to the uh, the love story of of those who want and continue having their cake and, and those who realize that members are violating the public trust. And we need to put some kind of restraint on that. So that's where we stand right now. So where where is the the just place? I mean, look, I don't want I don't want to necessarily say Congress uh, members need to be second class citizens when it comes to participating in the free market economy, but they certainly have a leg up on a lot of these things. Um, how can we prevent them from taking advantage of that? So there's a couple proposals, and I I think one is is a good good start and that is to have congressional members put if they want to be a market participant they need to be putting the money into blind trusts so that they are not able to directly purchase and sell stocks or options with the knowledge they have the money is being managed outside of their control by someone who doesn't realize uh they're managing money for congressional members and so on and so forth a couple of proposals have been put forth uh one that's gaining a lot of traction right now is from john ossoff the senator out of georgia He's a Democrat. He proposed this blind trust for lawmakers, and it would also include spouses and dependent children. Uh, this is you know, getting a lot of support from a lot of the Democrats, but this is a bipartisan issue. And I think uh, there's some very interesting support coming from Texas. Chip Roy, a representative, uh, Republican, and so same with Michael Cloud, both out of Texas, are in support of this. Uh, and recently, Abigail Spamberger, who's uh, uh, con- congressional member out of Virginia. She's been championing this now for a while as well. And you see now Republicans and Democrats working together. I mean, how rare is that? And this is an issue I think is really binding people together. And if you look at the top, it seems to be those who hold the tens of millions of dollars who are really pushing back on this. And um, eventually, I think the American people are going to to get frustrated with that. And currently, three out of four voters in a recent poll that was conducted and published by The Hill support banning congressional members from trading altogether, you know, take blind trusts out of it, just banning them altogether. So um, I think we have a lot of traction here. And with the election year running, uh, this this is the time to do it. That was one of the thoughts that came to mind, too, was I don't get that some people are upset about it because they know about it. But how is this not on more people's radar screen? I mean, maybe maybe voter turnout's lower than I thought, but you would think something like this would matter greatly to the voters. Are, are they just being misdirected and looking in the wrong direction? You know, I think when you look at it, I mean, my personal opinion on the matter is I, people, especially as of late, with all the things going on with COVID and the financial straits, people having trouble finding work, um, even though our employment figures are getting much better. People, I, I, I do tend to find care about issues that they feel directly impacts them. And something like this, while it's frustrating because they see their congressional members potentially benefiting on information that they're not privy to or say they work for a corporate entity, they themselves are not allowed to trade stocks with the information they might glean from their jobs. Uh, it doesn't directly impact them on the level that, uh, you know, affects the food on the table or the roof over their head. And it really comes down to, I think, knowledge. It comes down to a caring of information and wanting to be involved and, you know, making this a, a primary issue for an election campaign. If you're running against one of these many uh, senators or congressmen who has made millions of dollars has been beating the S&P 500 over the last few years. I would campaign against them on the premises of, do they really hold your interest? You're a public servant. Are you serving the public or are you serving your private interests? And I think that is how you would maybe turn someone who 
isn't all too privy to this or cares too much to make them realize, you know, yeah, he's not the average Joe that he holds himself out to be. He's over here making millions on options trading. A lot of Americans don't even know what options are. So I think making it be known that look how out of touch these people are. They're the ones writing your laws, but they don't understand what it's like to be on the ground like you or I. So um, I think knowledge is the number one number one issue here and just a level of care. No, I'm I'm with you there. And, you know, I see polls that indicate that politicians right now enjoy um, less public respect than used car salesmen, than, you know, perceived ambulance chasers, you know, than um I mean, the, the, you have to go pretty far down the food chain to, to get to where, you know, you see where, where the public's level of respect or acceptance, you know, uh, their, uh, what is it called? Their um, approval. Mm-hmm. <laughs> their approval ratings are very, right. very low. So reform here could definitely help. But I, I think a big part of that's going to be the public being informed and knowing and realizing they're benefiting how. Because it seems like a lot of this can be swept away with, you know, politicians who just stand there in front of their constituents and say, but look at all the money that I brought to, to your district. Like, you know, don't mm-hmm. don't hate me for for being part of the game. You know, you bring up a good point about approval ratings. And I, I think this is we you hear a lot about approval for the president and the, you know, the executive branch. But with it comes to the legislative branch, you know, a Pew report, they started this back in 1958 about the American public's general trust in the government. And in 1958, about 73% of Americans trusted our government. Um, I, I can't get information on whether that's all three branches of it or if it's just a singular branch, but uh, let's just roughly say it's the entire government. That was 73% in 1958. The most recent polling of that same Pew report that they've done every year was in April of 2021. It's down to 24%. Uh, you know, that's a 50 percent decrease here in about 60, 70 years. And I would imagine since April 2021, especially with these comments that came out from the speaker in late 2021, it might be under 20 percent at this point. Uh, that's a problem. And I think it's a problem that uh, too many Americans just glean over and we think, well, we'll just vote for the other other side. We'll, we'll change our, our politicians. But it's the same head of, uh, of of the same coin, I guess, a different face of the coin. It doesn't actually change anything. And the only way you're going to change is by getting people involved into politics, getting people involved in government who frankly see issues like this as a, as a major issue of corruption. The moment you can't trust your politicians to do the right thing for the public, well, that's no longer a government that's working on behalf of, of, of us. And the whole point of our founders was to make sure our government was held accountable with the checks and balances system. And if we lose that and it gets to the point where we no longer have the control to fix it, we're going to end up in a situation where um, we're kind of stuck. And, uh, you know, that's what you know, I like to use the, the phrase who watches the watchman. And I think it's really us as the general public. It's up to us to make that those calls and get the people out that we think are not doing our our favors. There's a great line in your spectator article that says their duties are to write and enact laws that improve the lives of Americans, not to write laws that line their pocketbooks with dubiously tri- timed security trading. Beautifully stated. And tell tell people where they can can follow your work. So, uh I I'm working on I'm getting back on Twitter. I, I took a took a break from that for many years, but uh, I post a lot of things. I use uh, LinkedIn as a professional resource to, to share and publish things that I, I'm, I'm fond of. Uh, the Young Voices uh, organization, I'm, I'm heavily involved with them, and I really appreciate the work that they do and they help promote. So you can go on youngvoices.org and find my talent page on there, and you can get a list of everything I'm working on. Um, outside of that, uh, that's that's about it. Okay, we have been visiting with Addison Hosner. Great to talk with you once again. I look forward to our next conversation. 
Absolutely, Brian. Always appreciate the time. 